Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a tremendous episode we have today. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Professors Juan Castaneda and Professor Pedro Schwartz-Giron. Professor Castaneda is part of the Institute of International Monetary Research and the University of Buckingham. And Professor Schwartz is at the Fundación Rafael del Pino. And I invited these two distinct gentlemen to come and talk to me about the Future of Europe journal issue number two, which is Inflation Rising. And I'm going to be talking about that after our conversation on the article, A More Political Euro, The Displacement Effect of the Eurozone in Times of Crisis. And this was written by Dr. Juan Castañeda. And now, with no further ado, I bring you Professors Castañeda and Professor Schwartz. I'm here with Professors Pedro Schwartz and Professor Juan Castañeda. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Very glad to be here. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here because we're going to talk about something really, really important. And it is in the minds of everyone as we move on into multiple crises after COVID, now the war in Ukraine, but also problems with supply chains, which is the spike in inflation in Europe. Juan, let's start with you. And that is, you wrote for ELF a paper with the title, A More Political Euro, The Displacement Effect of the Eurozone in Time of Crisis. And in that paper, you very elegantly go where the argument that there should be two different models of monetary integration in time of crisis. And I'm going to ask you, please, if you can extend a little bit that thesis. Sure, Ricardo. And if I may, uh, I, perhaps I, I can start by, uh, by clarifying a bit what I meant by the displacement effect in the, in the title of the, of the article, because it very much relates to these two models of integration that you asked me uh, about. So the displacement effect is, um, is a concept that I, that I have adopted, that I have taken from two excellent economists uh, from the 20th century, Wiseman and Peacock. They refer to the size of the public sector specifically uh, public spending as a ratio of the GDP in times of crisis, in terms of an extraordinary crisis, say a war. Mm -hmm. So uh, for, for many reasons, uh, in terms of a, of a war or a pandemic or extraordinary crisis, public spending goes up to the roof. And very rarely after the crisis, it returns to the pre-crisis levels. So that's the, the, the hypothesis, if you like, that I adopted uh, when analyzing what has happened to the role of the state in general, and in particular public spending in, um, uh, in the recent pandemic. But not only this, but also the roles adopted and expanded by European institutions, in particular the European Commission and also the European Central Bank. And why, why does this matter? Well, it very much relates to your question about these two models of uh, European integration, in particular uh, the, the, the way to expand and consolidate the euro. One way was the original one, if you like, Maastricht, in which, uh, you know, it was a very much a decentralized system. Uh, countries, member states uh, had the prerogative to decide their own uh, fiscal policies, macroeconomic policies, if you like, with the exception, obviously, of monetary policy that was very much integrated in the hands of the ECB. And the ECB was meant to be a, a political uh, central bank. What do I mean by this? Well, a central bank very much committed to maintaining price stability, on financial stability, mm -hmm. which is quite a lot, actually. It's very, it's very important, as we know. What 
Um, the European Union in particular, the Eurozone has uh, done in the last two crises, is very much against that uh, model of integration. Uh, mm -hmm. What it has done in the last two crises is to become much more centralized. So more power in the hands of the Commission, either the, the euro or the facto, it has happened, and also in, in the hands of the, of the European Central Bank, uh, which has been uh, adopting very expansionary monetary policies. Perhaps we can discuss them uh, uh, later on. And this means a change in the philosophy behind uh, the, the idea of the European Monetary Union, at least that visits back in the, in the 80s. Very, very good starting point, Juan. Uh, Pedro, I'm, I'm throwing to you right now because I want, you, of course, your take on this. And this displacement that Juan just mentioned, then how do you see then this phenomenon? I think uh, from a theoretical point of view, I think that money and monetary policy have one main aim, and that is to produce a currency that's stable and also to allow people to forecast what will happen to prices and, and the currency. And then uh, to that, many, many countries and also the European Union add the idea of money as an instrument of real macro policy. And that is wrong. Macro policy, that is real growth and <clears throat> real competition and progress, uh, are due to real uh, causes. And you shouldn't try to... Uh, make an economy grow uh, really and <clears throat> try to reduce uh, unemployment and to increase GDP through money. Money has one specific aim, and that is to keep uh, a stable monetary si si situation. And that is being forgotten by the European Union and by the central bank, see themselves as a macro policy government and not as a monetary policy institution. Juan, uh, let me ask you a quick follow-up, and that is you already explained why the displacement is happening and why there's this tendency to try to centralize the process and make it more political. Is this because of need, because of circumstance, or because we're copying, like, for example, what the feds in America, they do? Do you, do you have a vision on that? It's not by accident, actually. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a policy option. Perhaps some may think that uh, uh, a generous uh, assessment would be that some may think that uh, this is a necessity in terms of a great crisis. But it didn't have to be that way. What the European institutions have uh, chosen to be is to replicate, as you put it, what um, a modern state, nation state, would do in the same circumstances which is what the U.S. Uh, is doing, for example, is the coordination of the Treasury in the U.S. spending more, and that being supported, which means being financed heavily, massively, by the National Central Bank, the Federal Reserve. Something similar has been adopted, and indeed done, uh, quite naturally, if I can put it that way, by the European Central Bank in support of the member states. That was very extraordinary. That was very much disputed in the aftermath of the, of the global financial crisis, and the main difference between the 2008 onwards years and now, 2020 onwards, is uh, how much more ready 
and uh, willing has the European Central Bank been in supporting governments? De facto, it has bailed out actually governments in times of a severe uh, crisis. So that's a precedent that I think uh, uh, that what I call the, the, the displacement effect, that I don't think that it was going to go away. The expectation in the future is that uh, governments will be able to spend more, much more, and that will be very uh, cheaply financed by the National Central Bank, i.e. the European Central Bank. Pedro, coming to you again, because I was very interested in what you were saying, and that is we're starting on the wrong point, which is we're just injecting money on the system and not actually working on the system for the system to function by itself. And following what Juan was saying, how sustainable is this then? For example, this inflation crisis that we have right now, it will only get worse even if we're trying to solve it that way. So where are we on this? The inflation crisis, as we'll no doubt discuss in a second, the inflation crisis will abate slowly. Uh, and also the central bank will take measures to try and reduce inflation. You must be very careful not to go too hard on the break. But still, the inflation crisis is something that should give us a lesson rather than uh, worrying and uh, and, and being depressed by the fact that it'll go on forever. It won't go on forever, especially <clears throat> if the right measures are taken. So it's a wider question you, you said to me. Uh, what is the future of the European Union as an economic uh, agent? And the feel that we all have is that the European Union is setting back uh, a sort of looking askance at technological progress, feeling that technological progress and, uh, uh, will, have con will have consequences for employment, will have consequences for people, and they should be protected. The idea that um, the European Union should be protected from progress mm. is the way I would put it, and it's very dangerous because... Other countries, especially the United States, will go on, not because of the government, but because they spontaneously will go on progressing uh, <clears throat> with new ideas, especially artificial intelligence will be a revolution in our lives. And we shouldn't resist. And the impression is that the European Union is resisting all the time uh, and fear, fear of the future. And that will make it less... Uh, make the union um, less resilient. Juan, let me get back to you then, because if, as you mentioned, the institutions are growing, they're becoming more powerful, they're becoming more centralized. You just described that, particularly with the European Central Bank. And if it's not by design, it doesn't look to us from the outside that they're doing anything to stop that growth and that uh, increase in power then why was everyone so surprised with this current inflation spike? What happened and what, what went wrong? That's an excellent question. That's, and that's shocking uh, to me, actually, what has happened in the last uh, uh, two years. Essentially, what the European Central Bank has done is to uh, extensively monetize the debt of the governments of the member states, as I said before. That means that um, what the European Central Bank has done is to expand massively the amount of money in the economy not just cash in circulation, but also bank deposits. Whenever that has happened in the past, even though with a delay, 
uh, there is a connection between the increasing amount of money in the economy and later on an increasing uh, nominal spending in the economy, the ability of uh, agents, companies, uh, households to spend more money. And finally, after one or two years, an increase in CPI prices, consumer price mm-hmm. index uh, prices. So this connection that we have seen uh, on several occasions, plenty of occasions historically, both in early modern times and much more recently, has been forgotten by modern central banks. They just don't incorporate this very basic, basic relation between uh, the amount of money in the economy and prices anymore. They use mm-hmm. other models, explaining inflation differently, in my opinion, wrongly. The ECB was the exception to the rule, especially up to 2003. And they did uh, take into consideration changes in the amount of money in assessing inflation. But with the recent change, the recent strategy review of the European Central Bank policies in, 2000, in 2021, they have removed this component. They don't pay that much attention to money growth anymore. And we see the consequences of it now with a massive expansion in money growth translated into CPI inflation, consumer inflation in one or two years. So for anyone with any uh, economic history knowledge of what has happened uh, with inflation in the past, this should not come as a surprise at all. But unfortunately, uh, for modern central banks, not just the ECB, it's in a very good company, also the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve of the US, it has uh, come as a surprise because they, they don't incorporate money in their models. I would widen this idea. I think very often mistakes of economic policy are due to us economists. We, it is the theoreticians that don't have the right theory and don't explain things and don't act as they should, who are the start of the bad situation. This is what we have today. It is the economic profession, with very few exceptions, that doesn't understand the role of money, uh, doesn't understand uh, real growth and the mechanisms for real growth. And therefore, it is we economists who are to blame because we forget essential, essential elements in our understanding of the economy and, what, and economic policy. So, uh, as uh, Juan just said, central banks don't look at money. It's their business. Money is their business, and they don't look at it. They don't take it into account, and it's because they have the wrong theories. And this is something that's very diff- difficult to change. Then... Gentlemen, uh, if we have the wrong theories, if they're not watching the processes as they should, and actually Juan just said a minute ago that he doesn't agree with, with actual uh, some of the decisions making right now, or Pedro was just saying that we need to focus on, on, on the right way to maintain the system. So how did we get out of, uh, how do we get out of this mess then? I'll start with you, Pedro, and then go to Juan. I think we'll get out of the process because we are hitting the windscreen. Uh, we've been going at a, at a certain speed, and suddenly central banks and governments will get very worried. And so they'll put their foot on the brake and also take all sorts of, uh, all sorts of decisions that are not right. And therefore, suddenly people will find that the situation is worsening. Not, in, not so much in terms of, pr- of prices, but in terms of how the economy is growing and how people are getting uh, how people are getting more prosperous. Uh, the worry that they have in America that 
this generation will not be as prosperous as the previous one is the, the wrong way to, to look at it. We in the European Union and in the world in general are facing a technological revolution. I mentioned uh, artificial intelligence that's really going to change our lives in very deep ways and our employment and our prosperity. And this is what we should be working for. And, uh, and this is not in the, the economists are short-sighted and not seeing what, what is going to happen. We ought to join this expansion, especially, and I'm simply going to make a small mention, what we are all worrying about is the climate and taking all sorts of measures to stop us from growing in the end. Because if we grow, we, there'll be more CO2 in the system. And this idea that um, <clears throat> the, the economic system of our free nations will not be able to face uh, the, uh, um, the consequences of economic uh, or of, the, of climate change, that, that is wrong. We, we've all, this is going back to Malthus, uh, who, who thought that the productivity of, of agriculture will not be at the same level as the increase in population. We're, we're doing it again, uh, <clears throat> saying that our system will not be able to spontaneously face uh, these worrying developments in climate. Juan, I'm going to stay with you, right? There are a lot of money being injected in member states with the next generation EU, now with the Recover and Resilience Plans, a lot of money to exactly digital transition, energy transition. So my question to you again is, and you were just saying that sometimes you get a little uh, afraid of, of the decisions, macroeconomic decisions that we're making. How do you see then this thing play out? Well, um, I'm very critical of what the, the ECB has done, as you, as you have seen uh, in my previous uh, <laughs> comments. Uh, they shouldn't have expanded the amount of money that much. Uh, that was not necessary. They shouldn't have uh, uh, enrolled themselves in these massive asset purchases programs, specifically public debt. So what are we now on how to, how to fight inflation uh, moving forward? Well, the, the responses of the ECB in the last few months have been very delayed. It has come uh, late already uh, as regards you know, how to fight uh, the current inflation episode. And this is because they have not diagnosed uh, uh, the, the causes and the, the ultimate determinants of inflation properly. They keep on telling us that inflation comes from an increase in uh, such prices and those other prices, import prices, energy prices, and so on. And now this terrible war in Ukraine. And I'm sorry, but this is not the ultimate cause of inflation. Inflation comes from the excess in the, in the amount of money in the economy as compared to the amount of goods and services we can exchange in the market. Mm -hmm. And who is responsible for this? Well, the monetary policy maker, <laughs> which is the, the European Central Bank in the Eurozone. So what can we do now? Well, the ECB has announced uh, uh, this week that it will start raising the, the policy rate and it will terminate the asset purchase uh, uh, program. Well, uh, these, all these measures, they, have, they should have been done uh, quarters ago. <laughs> I mean, uh, they shouldn't have started in the first place and they should have been stopped uh, much earlier. So remember that there is a, a delayed effect between changes in the amount of money and prices. So inflation in 2023 and 2024 will still reflect the excessive money growth in 2021 and 2022. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why I said that we are coming late in, uh, to, to this uh, 
scenario of fighting inflation. So what we can do uh, uh, much better in the future is something Petro, Petro Schwartz has said before, which is to concentrate on this very basic relation between the amount of money in the economy and maintaining price stability. One more thing we haven't touched on is debt, public debt. Uh, the, uh, the macroeconomic policies intent on reflating the economy, on making it uh, uh, grow more, uh, have been uh, concreted in the, the plans that the Commission has for restarting the economy and also for the seven-year budget that the uh, uh, Commission has put forward. This is an amount of, of uh, new expense growing into the trillions of euros. In fact, it's uh, 1.2 trillion euros that are going to be uh, spent to try and make the economy grow. And this is dangerous because it goes into debt. The Commission, for the first time, is uh, issuing debt because, and also making uh, issuing debt instead of the states doing so. And so this is a centralizing move, but also a move of uh, very dangerous growth of the central institutions. Well, that's one, one bit there, and it's being done in part because uh, we promised the citizens in Europe that <clears throat> they'll be all right, they'll be looked after, that if they uh, meet an accident, as the war in Ukraine or the accident we've had with COVID, don't worry, the Commission, Europe will look after you. And these are promises that go on top of um, uncontrolled welfare states, promising things that are impossible, uh, such as a stable pension system, public pension system. Um, and so people are getting angry because they, are, they hear these promises, they're being told that everything will be all right because the Commission is going to spend uh, <clears throat> to spend much more money on you. And then when the results don't come along, people will be angry, <clears throat> disappointed, disaffected. And that's one of the consequences we have of the situation, which is that people believe less in the European Union and believe less in the future of the economic situation. That is a fantastic point. I want to stay here a little more because I, I do know you both gentlemen are not legislators, are not politicians. Uh, you're both from the economics world, but I'm sure you were worried about this. So Juan, uh, it looks from the outside, like Professor Pedro was saying, that all this decision-making looks like a little bit like financial engineering, all this trying to artificially maintain the system with injections of money that breeds inflation, then that breeds a recession, and then that brings austerity measures. And we, knew, we do know what happens when those measures are applied to save economies, and that is the populists, they grow. And they have more votes, and then they promise things that, like Professor Pedro was saying, they're not attainable, but they will promise them. They will promise, we will take care of them we will take care of you. You know, the, the, the bureaucrat, bureaucrats will not do it. We, the populists, will do it. So in, in your position as an economist, I know, but how, how do you bridge these two problems then? Well, there is a major risk in that scenario, Ricardo, uh, which is 
um, as Pedro put it, if we are running unsustainable uh, public spending policies, if the economy is not protective enough uh, to to provide you know a, a, a healthy tax base to to pay for these policies, uh, then what the, what politicians and policymakers would be doing is is to promise in a scenario that is not sustainable over the medium to long term. So how can we pay for it? Either with uh, austerity policies, as you put it, uh, higher taxes, or which seems to be the way uh, uh, chosen in the last uh, two years by uh, uh, subsidizing governments with uh, easy money, with the so-called monetization of the deficit. Sorry for the for the technicality, which is we provide uh, the money to pay for for public spending for the public debt to be paid, but that comes as a, at a cost. That's not free. Who would be paying for that? All of us in terms of higher inflation. So effectively, if we go to for the the latter route, would be um, uh, subsidizing public spending over the medium to long term but at the expense of uh, sacrificing price stability. We'll be having a much weaker, weaker uh, currency. And remember who pays for, who suffers the consequences from inflation the most? Those with the lower uh, level of income, the weakest, mm -hmm. economically speaking, society. So this mm -hmm. is not free. <clears throat> like, Milton, like Milton Friedman said, there are no free lunches. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's, one, there's a point about the disaffection is that when you have inflation, people will turn against each other. Inflation makes for unhappy people saying, why me? I want my, my income to go up too with prices and so on. And, and so when you have inflation, you have social disruption. And this is obviously coming in the whole of Europe and certainly in the southern part of, of Europe in, or, or the European Union. And this, this will breed more disaffection because people not only will get angry, but look at others and saying they, they are getting more than me. But do we have a little bit of a way out when governments say, look at the international situation. Look, we're just coming out of the pandemic. Now we have a war. We have the United States. We have China. So, uh, and, and Pedro, I'll stay with you and then I'll go to Juan on that. How long can then the, the populace understand those problems and, 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 and agree with the governments that those are the problems and we're trying to solve them? Or do you think it can go a little faster than that? No, I think they will try to, to put the blame on, on COVID and on Ukraine uh, and, uh, and not tell the people, look, we are poorer for a short time. We're going through a situation of inflation, which makes people poorer and angry, <clears throat> and of a war uh, and uh, lack of supplies of food and, and other elements. Uh, and this is a situation you have to face it, uh, voters. We have to be clear that we are not going to have an easy time in the next uh, two or three years. Mm -hmm. And it's best to tell than to try and cover what is happening. I could not agree with you more on that. And Juan, you were just a minute ago uh, trying not to get too technical. <laughs> and that is very cool of you to, to protect our listeners. But uh, if you need to get specific, please do. And it is, for example, exactly what Peter was saying and I was going to suggest, and that is more information to the public. How can we make this information then being digestible to the electorate so that we don't have these tensions that Peter was saying? And worse than that, 
voting on massive voting on populists? Well, one of the things we could do is to make it clearer to the public uh, what the institutions, the European institutions, are responsible for in the first place. So if we start with the European Central Bank, they were, they still are, according to the status of the ECB, they are responsible for maintaining price stability and financial stability in times of crisis. And that's difficult enough to do. It's doable, but it's difficult enough. The European, the European Central Bank, uh, along other uh, central banks are doing, are effectively expanding the, the mandate uh, through the back door, if you like. <laughs> so they are not telling it to the public, but effectively they are doing it. This is the support uh, of the governments that I was telling you uh, before, this expansion of the, of the mandate in order to care for the so-called green agenda, uh, which is fine, but fine if they want to. It's not that I agree uh, to it, but that will have to be discussed uh, by the European Member States, the European Parliament, that will have to be ratified, that will have to be incorporated in the status of the ECP and so on. And the same applies to this level of support to the governments. That was not, uh, that is not actually in the constitution of the European Central Bank and effectively it's been done again through the back door. So mm -hmm. this, is not, uh, this is not fair on the constituents of the European Central Bank, all the members of the uh, uh, Eurozone, the citizens in the Eurozone, and that has to be much more transparent People are responsible in making decisions if they have the information to assess uh, those decisions made by policymakers. That's the only way forward in order, in order to have uh, much more informed uh, voters. Well, uh, at least from the European Liberal Forum, we will try to keep doing that. And uh, we had, uh, again, the pleasure of having one uh, writing a paper for our Future of Europe journal. and. Um, I'm going to make quite sure that uh, uh, Professor Pedro is also going to be invited for that. And gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. We're running out of time. But again, like I said, I'm going to ask you to come back so that we can continue to talk about this really important point. But now, because this podcast also has the objective of empowering people to exactly like Juan was saying, to know more and to get involved. Let's start with you, Juan. Where do you uh, guide our listeners? You can know more about it. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Ricardo. Yes, um, if you want to learn more about inflation and the, the determinants of inflation, uh, please visit uh, the, the, the website of the Institute that I work for, the Institute of International Monetary Research, which is www.nv-pt.org, in which you will find uh, plenty of videos. We publish a video uh, every month with the latest monetary and inflation developments, not only in the UK, but also uh, in the six, actually, six largest world economies. And you mm -hmm. can just subscribe for, for free and follow us. You can read also Professor Swartz's uh, great literature on this, on this subject. I learned uh, most of what I know about uh, inflation from him. And he has uh, excellent uh, papers written for the IEA, for example, the Institute of Economic Affairs. And if you want to follow me online, uh, I'm fairly active on social media, on Twitter, at uh, Juan Castaneda F, F for Fernandez. So I would be very happy to engage in, in, in the discussion with our listeners online or by email, if you like. As, as for me, I'll be very happy to answer any queries or questions that you make. And also, you can follow me, some of the things I've, I'm writing, at the foundation. And there I have some, uh, some courses, some courses in Spanish and so also interventions in, in English. And in any case, they, you can write to me at pedro at pedroschwartz.com. 
and uh, I'm very happily answer. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast show notes so that, again, we can have our listeners not only know more, but getting involved with this too. Fantastic guests that I had here today. Gentlemen, this was a great privilege. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. It was a very illuminating conversation. It feels to me like a layman and someone from the outside that we did broke some ground, but there's so much more that we can talk about and in such an important topic with this. So again, thank you so much for spending some time with me here in the podcast. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank Thank you. you very much, Ricardo. My pleasure. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, let's talk about the issue number two of the Future of Europe Journal, this time with the title Inflation Rising. This was actually the editor. It's Professor Castaneda that we just heard in the podcast. And It assesses EU monetary policy in a post-COVID political economy. With crises around us and persistent expansive monetary policies, we are witnessing daily increases in prices while our purchasing power is rapidly fading. This is hurting low- and middle-income earners and families in particular. Therefore, this issue attempts to add content to the long-standing discussion about the necessary change in the organization of the Monetary and Banking Union. You can find this publication by visiting our website in liberalforum.eu forward slash publications and then just look for the Future of Europe journal. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>